Programming Throwdown, episode 59, Deploying Software. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. Uh, I have some pretty cool news. So I've done some digging into t-shirts. I found a, uh, uh, I found out something kind of interesting. So there's, there's two ways to get t-shirts printed. The first way is ink printing. And uh, that looks you know okay like i don't really want to like bash it too much but it just it's not what you expect like when you see a t-shirt like a professional t-shirt someone's wearing this is not that (laughs) like this is just like it looks like kind of stained um then they have screen printing and that's like the real deal um so i found a place that will do screen printing but the, the the caveat is um we have to put in our order in advance so um they just print it all. Like I guess they have to set up some equipment. They print it all and then they kind of tear down the equipment. Uh, it's not really like quite an on-demand thing. So I set up a straw poll. Um, I'm going to post a straw poll in the show notes and also on uh, Facebook, Google+, Plus, all of those uh, social media channels. And uh, uh, go on the straw poll and vote uh, your size. If you want to buy two, vote twice. Uh, you know, So I've set it up so that um, you, know, you can do that and uh, put in your votes and then we will uh, bulk order the uh, T-shirts uh, and we'll, I'll try and figure out some way to get it to everyone. But put in the order now and then uh, also um, send uh, Patrick and I an email um, so we have your email address. So you know, put in the order, like the, the vote, that way we kind of have an idea of how many people are interested and things like that. Um, also email us. Um, and let us know what size you want. That way we have a way of getting back to you. And uh, yeah, let's make some awesome t-shirts. I'm really excited. The design looks awesome. And I think this is going to be pretty killer. So that's the intro. Let's do uh, news and links. So uh, my news item, first news item is Keros. And specifically, it's Keros JS. So Keros is a neural net library. Um, the idea is... Um, you have a, a neural network, which is a sort of nonlinear composition of functions that's meant to sort of, uh, you know, kind of learn some mapping. So, for example, let's say you have a bunch of weather data. Um, you, you have the day of the year, like is it, you know, February 14th of whatever year and what the weather is. And you want to build some model that says what tomorrow's weather is going to be. Um, you could run it all through, you know, a neural net. And uh, it will approximate, you know, it will kind of interpolate, um, you know, based on the averaging and all that, what the weather is going to be like. Um, so neural nets are very, very popular for doing machine learning. Um, Keras is a pretty cool library. The reason why I mention this uh, is they made something called Keras JS, which is pretty cool. The idea is you can take a model that's trained. So you could take, you know, your weather model that you trained with Keras and you can actually run it in the browser. So someone can actually have your model running in their browser and play with the days and, and get different weather forecasts and things like that. Um, so I thought, you know, especially for building tools and just for visualization, it's kind of kind of cool. So I guess to, to kind of elaborate more or whatever, because I, I don't I know a lot of people get a lot of people are curious about machine learning, but I don't always exactly understand how it is. So when you say they run the model, what you're saying is you've trained it previously in some other way, but they can actually take a given set of inputs and get the results without kind of training or changing the underlying model that's already been trained or the weights that have been given. 
Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly right. And the reason why this is kind of really interesting and and hard is they actually run it on your GPU. So, you know, the these models, you know, obviously training it is very difficult. But even executing the model, if it's really big, like imagine if the model is doing some kind of crazy image processing, where it's you know taking your face and like putting a dog face on it or something. Like, like overlaying a dog tongue on your face, like what Snapchat does. Um, those kind of models are like really complicated. And like you can download, you know, a model which does that. So you don't have to train it yourself. Like they've trained it on a bunch of people's faces. But even just running that model um, in the browser, it just would run way too slow unless it used your graphics card. And so I don't even know how they did this. But somehow, I guess there's a JavaScript library for accessing your graphics card. Um, oh, it's probably WebGL, right? Well, it's so open source, it's, so we can look at the source and figure it out. <laughs> that's right. So they're probably, like, they probably did some crazy WebGL hacking or something. I have no idea how they did this, but uh, it's fascinating. And uh, they even have some sample models, which is pretty cool. There's a model that where you can draw on the screen and it'll tell you what number you drew, like if you drew a three or a four. Um, so yeah, check it out. If nothing else, check it out as like a cool toy to play with. Um, but if you're into doing machine learning, uh, check it out for realsies because it's pretty cool. I should also say uh, Snapchat is probably not using a neural network model for, or a machine learning model at all for applying a tongue to a face. Really? Yeah. Well, they have to detect your face, right? So, I, well, maybe, but I mean, you could do things like detect features of the face, like through SIFT or some other kind of features and tracking and putting it on. I mean, do you think they're evaluating, like they may have like a f- eye detector that is a model, but you think they really have a apply tongue to face thing? Oh, no, no, no. You're totally right. So yeah, they okay. have like the neural net says an eyeball is here, a nose is here. And then from there, they kind of guess... Or maybe they have a neural net that figures out where the corners of your mouth are or something. Yeah. Right. Or even just more traditional image processing for doing those things. I mean, I don't know what state of the art is or how well it works. I've never used that feature, to be fair. Yeah. Um, So so people used to do a lot with like SIFT and these kind of like, they're called unsupervised methods. The idea is, you know, SIFT is just like, it's a way to just say, look, this part of an image is interesting. And someone has taken so many images um, over such a long period of time that they have this kind of interesting detector. Um, a lot of people are moving from that to neural nets where they, um, have labeled data and they say, you know, I want a corner of mouth detector. Um, so that's kind of the state of the art. You're right though. Snapchat could probably get away with just using SIFT. Um, the accuracy would be like a little less, but it, it's, it'd probably be fine for most things. I mean, most people are looking right at the camera. Well, also, they need to be able to do it, you know, kind of, they're probably willing to accept less accuracy for something that runs more quickly on a bunch of devices. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, great point. But those are the kinds of things you have to think about. There's some trade-off there. Yeah, I mean, you know, in general, like neural nets are, I mean, they're super old, but they weren't that popular until maybe five years ago or something. And so, uh, you know, now like phone companies are starting to catch up and things like that. But there's still a lot of, as Patrick said, a lot of devices where, you know, you could run SIFT pretty easily, but you can't run a a neural net. So the next news article we have 
is called More Interesting Mazes. By, and it's on, I don't actually know how you would pronounce the name of this website, but it's been around forever, Gama Satura. I call I it Gama Sutra, but yeah, you're probably oh, always right. <laughs> it could be, yeah. So this is, you know, you've probably seen them before if you've hung out anywhere. I don't even know how far back they go. But they run a lot of articles about technology behind making games, game development. Uh, they host like postmortems for failed games. And so there's an article I read a few days ago about generating interesting mazes. And this is, at first I thought it was going to be about, you know, the maze that you did when you were, well, maybe you still do them, but where you have an entry point on one side and an exit point on another, yep. uh, and you're trying to go through the maze. But I guess it's all, it, it's kind of just talking about more generally a maze being a mathematical term where there are rooms and walls and there is only a single path between any two rooms. So kind of like Doom, like the, the levels in Doom. Exactly right. So talking about like levels for a game. Although, I mean, you could have multiple paths. There isn't anything wrong with that. But if you restrict yourself to trying to have a unique path between two different points and then kind of going about how an algorithm would generate a maze and there's like a lot of naive ways of doing it but then if you kind of start adding coloring to the various you can think of it as like a grid into the various nodes on the grid adds different coloring and run the algorithm you can kind of generate and and it has a a, if nothing else you can just go through and look at all the pictures (laughs) they're kind of cool where they generate awesome slanted mazes and you know circular mazes recursive mazes and just talking about all the different ways to generate and, and I, you know, it doesn't kind of call it out, but this is very similar to kind of procedurally generated, or I, I feel like this is sort of similar, where you're kind of taking a notion or a description of how to do something and then kind of applying that to a whole area. Um, yeah, totally. And so they're producing what looks like really interesting designs and patterns from relatively simple rules. Yeah, this is awesome. This reminds me of, uh, and I think we talked about this years ago, that cellular automata that made cave cave mazes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is so cool. I wonder, you know, I mean, you could make a, a maze app for kids where you know, they have to draw from one side to the other, and it could just keep generating mazes. It would never stop. Yeah. Cool. But, I mean, I guess this is an interesting thing where you can make many valid mazes, but if you don't kind of teach the computer what is an interesting maze, then the maze could be really boring. Like, yeah, right. Or super, super hard, right? If there's only one path or something. Yeah. And there's like ways of measuring that for mazes. But people talk about the same thing for like Sudoku. That, you know, there's like the ratings on the puzzle. And there's kind of a way to quantify how hard it is. But then there's an argument where people say, oh, humans create better Sudoku puzzles because they kind of craft an experience through the solution versus the computer doesn't. But over time, the computer can be taught to do the same thing. Um, And so it it doesn't work anymore. There's a thing that still floats around. I was reading some about it with the recent uh, AlphaGo where people, for a while, the best chess, the best way to play chess was uh, you run a bunch of computers and then a human makes judgment call about which computer's kind of giving the best answer. And this kind oh, okay. of hybrid human and computer approach. And for a while, that was like considered better than either humans or computers. And so a lot of people actually, that became kind of like a, a notion that a lot of people still think is true, even though now computers far surpass, like if you a human gets involved, it'll just make it worse. 
Uh, and so yeah, actually what you're describing is kind of interesting because there's a surge in a new method. There's a ton of research papers that came out this year on this method called uh, generative adversarial networks. And it's exactly what you described, except instead of a human, it's another um, algorithm. So basically you have one algorithm or many that generate um, solutions, let's say. And then you have another algorithm that kind of gives you a thumbs up or thumbs down. And the the algorithms that got a thumbs down on their solution, they like, you know, are disappointed. <laughs> like, like they kind of change the way that their function works. And the ones that got a thumbs up, they're like reinforced. Like they, they want to do that again. And so the idea is um, they actually used it for generating art. So um, they built this one... Um, this one algorithm, all it does is it looks at a bunch of fine works of art and a bunch of random images, and it learns to distinguish one from the other. And then they have these a bunch of other algorithms that try to generate fine art. And, and this first one, you know, tells them how good they're doing. And it turned out if you do this enough, you can actually make your own art generator where you kind of seed it with the, like you could seed it with a picture of a robot and a Van Gogh painting and it'll find some way to like, you know, integrate those two together that makes the fine art algorithm happy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. We'll make that a, a news next next month. <laughs> but yeah, so anyways, more interesting mazes. That was a little bit of a side stroll, but Yeah. No, that's totally awesome. Check it out. It has has a bunch of really cool pictures of mazes. Very compelling. It makes you want to solve them all. Um uh, I guess you can't though, right? Because they don't have a. Well, you could if you because any two rooms are only connected in one way. If you put a random start and a random finish anywhere, oh, there you go. It'll be then valid. Solve it. I think. Yeah. I Makes didn't. Sense. I didn't think all the way through that, but. Yeah. Um, all right. My news is something pretty cool. It's called MyPy. It's uh, static typing for Python three. So um, you see a lot of languages that have this. Um, like uh, with, with dynamically typed languages, like they do this goofy thing with annotations where at the top of the function, you do like at sign, int. And it's just, it just feels so like ugly and, and kind of hacky and crafted. Um, this is not that. <laughs> this is finally statically typed Python that looks nice. So like, for example, in the, um, in the you know, function parameters, it works just like, uh, you know, hack did to PHP. So in the function parameters, you just put the name of the parameter colon the type. Um, and if you don't put a type, it works just like Python. But if you put, you know, colon type, then MyPy can do something, you know, do something clever with that. So, you know, if you, if your function is, you know, X colon int and someone passes in John to your function, the MyPy checker, you know, it's not a compiler really because the Python compiler handles that. This just checks it and says, uh, you know, no, you did, you did something that's not legit. Um, this is super, super important because of, you know, code aging and because of many people working on the same code base. I mean, if I, if I have a function that takes two ints and a string and I decide that the middle int, I don't want it anymore, so I just delete it and people are calling into my function, um, Python will... Uh, Python, well, depending on how the person calls into the function, Python might actually accept that. Like if I have an args component at the end or something. 
And it'll just, it'll just, the program will behave in a very strange way and no one will know why. Um, so, so this static checker catches those things. And uh, I can't tell you how many times this has saved me in languages that have this like TypeScript and hack and things like that. I mean, I've been, I constantly advocate for, you know, strong typed languages. And uh, this kind of brings it to Python, which I think is pretty awesome. There seems to be the current trend is away from untyped or dynamically typed. I guess not untyped, but dynamically typed languages. The pendulum seems to have swung back to adding types or having types. Yeah, I mean, now that they have the, uh, what's it called? Um, like Haskell and Scala, the type inferencing. Now that they have the type inferencing where most of the time you don't need a type, but some of the times you do. Like, for example, if you have a function, the parameters need to be typed because there's no there's no information to be gleaned there, right? But if you have, you know, x equals 1, you don't need a type because it's, it's, it's just right there in front of you. And so, you know, type inferencing has allowed, um, you know, programming language designers to only, you know, uh, have you put a type when it's really needed. And I think that has made strongly typed languages just you know, much more like all the value is still there and the penalty oh, is that's not a good so point. much. Well, that's if you're very aggressive in using auto in C++, it's, yep. it's sort of the same way. A lot of times auto is a shortcut for a very specific type and the type cannot change and it can only be one type, but like the compiler will figure it out instead of you needing to write it out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Does your editor do this? If you go over, if you mouse over a variable, so I haven't done C++ in a long time. If you mouse over a variable that's auto, will it tell you the type? Um, I use Eclipse and it won't, but oh, it will tell you if you got it wrong. Like when you like compile, if you just... if you have auto, you know, foo equals some constructor, um, and then you do foo dot it knows the type of foo but if you hover over foo it just gives you the line where you defined it oh i see maybe it's just a ui change but yeah. for scala for scala whenever you hover over a variable eclipse tells you the type it's super valuable oh that's nice yeah well talking about c++ uh nice. the 2016 cpp con just concluded and i had Previously leading up to it, uh, I guess I've never really traveled to a convention like CPPCon or, or visited or attended. Seems like it would be cool. Yeah, uh, it just, awesome. Just never gone. We should um, go. I mean, I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice. Right? There you go. We'll have a boondoggle. I mean, business trip. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's the next one in Hawaii? Um, yeah, exactly. I was thinking the same thing. But there are several topics that caught my eye or I'd come across them in Google searches um, and the nice thing is after CPPCon, they do release all the videos just on YouTube. And so it's not really a news article, but a helpful link is if you go to the uploads portion of the CPPCon channel, which will link in the show notes, or you can just type CPPCon, one word, into YouTube, um, you will see a list of the 2016 talks. I don't know if they're all up yet, but they have a whole bunch up now. Uh, it looks like they stopped uploading a couple of days ago, so they must be almost done or done. Yeah, um, there's hours and hours and hours of talks. There are, and there are some really good ones in here. Like, I don't want to name any because I know I'll mess some up, 
but and also I'll butcher some of the spe- many all the speakers' names. <laughs> yeah. um, but Herb Sutter has some good ones in here about kind of how modern C++ should work and how you should use pointers and memory ownership and transfer. Um, that's really enlightening because a lot of people still develop C++ as they did a long time ago. And C++ is, well, you can't, I don't know if you can say it has changed. I mean, it has changed, but you can still do all the old things, but there are kind of newer ways that are mostly just strictly better. Yep. Um, and so if you're not writing modern C++, most of the time you're probably missing out. There are probably rare occasions where you shouldn't or can't. Or you don't have a compiler which supports modern C++. Um, but there's a lot to offer in kind of the modern way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, think about how many wasted, like how, how much wasted code is, you know, for int i equals zero or for some iterator and you have to define it and increment it and, you know, and with auto, I mean, yeah, this, there's a ton of new stuff. It's really cool. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff in here, I think, even about proposals for, I guess, what will be 17, C++ 17. Um, and yeah, I would, the, all the talks I've wa- watched or watched part of have seemed really well put together and I really liked what they were saying, but I assume there's also stuff in here that's considered controversial or just someone's opinion about the best way to do stuff. Uh, I've seen like a lot of, uh, convention drama recently. There was, a I can't remember. I think it was Ruby on rails. There was a convention where a guy got kicked out. Um, I guess he was making some rude jokes or something. But like, uh, oh, no, it wasn't Ruby on Rails. It was uh, Node.js. There's a Node.js conference. And uh, this guy made a couple of rude jokes. I didn't think they were that rude. They were kind of rude. Um, and like they kicked him out. Like he was supposed to speak again the next day. They kicked him out. And then someone got kicked out of another conference a couple weeks later. So, yeah, don't be rude at conferences. <laughs> uh, I was also wondering like what it takes to present at such a conference like i mean i know you apply and you you kind of send in what you would like to talk about but i feel i I would be feel very i mean we do this podcast but i would still feel very intimidated to get up at a you know cp c plus plus conference and present something c plus plus related uh personally i just find that like super scary yeah but they're i think they're all developers like you know they're all c plus plus so it's probably a pretty tight-knit community that would be my guess yeah, if you went to them, you probably wouldn't be. I guess because I've never listened to a conference, the thought of presenting at one seems really intimidating. Yeah, I so. mean, it. It. Uh, the thing about it is, is the audience of C plus plus is obviously enormous, but like the developer base, I don't know how many people do you think, you know, have written more than a thousand lines of the C plus plus compiler? Probably not that many. Oh, maybe I see what you're saying. So you're saying it isn't people who write C plus plus. You're saying it's people who are kind of nerd out on the language itself yeah exactly so it's not c++ users but when you say c++ developers you mean people working on clang and gcc and yeah like libraries they might be you know hundreds of thousands of c++ developers who watch the talk but who actually go to the conference you know it's probably just a core group of people i guess i should have done more research for my news article I don't know what the intended audience for the conference yeah, is. Yeah, actually, I'm just, I mean, I'm just speculating. I don't know either. I um, assumed it was probably a C++ users conference. Um, maybe. Yeah, I wonder, 
It's okay. Well, there's so the videos have been up for six days and they have a thousand views. So yeah, I mean, it's probably. Uh, I mean, it probably is for users, but hardcore ones like you. <laughs> what? Uh, oh wait, that's a compliment. Nope, an insult. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, it's definitely a compliment. All right. Well, time for book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is a, a bit of a cop out. Um, this is a website. Bayesian Methods for Hackers. Um, we've covered this before. Yes, it's a website As we've the covered website. before. Yeah. And this is a book. So the website was so popular. Um, they printed sure, it out. I'm sure in, in no small part because of us. No. <laughs> and, and maybe because it was on the front page of Hacker News for months and months. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the website was so unbelievably popular and so enamoring that uh, they printed a book. Um, the book is literally the website, um, you know, in a, in a nice format. Um, but I think it's awesome. I'm going to pick it up. Um, it's a great reference material. Uh, there's the thing about, you know, this, this Bayesian, it's, it's really, um, a lot of it is about explaining uncertainty. And this is something that I honestly feel like everyone with a CS degree needs to know. Um, like, let's say you do make, uh, a good example uh like let's say you want to make an ai to play risk well risk has a lot of chance right i mean you roll the die sometimes like you win but then there's there's there you could even you know forget about making a perfect like a like an amazing player but even just making a basic player you know there's there's risk but you have to kind of make decisions in in a domain where you have this uncertainty and you have to be able to adapt to the uncertainty and kind of model that and I definitely, you know, when I got my degree, I had no idea how to do that. Um, and I even, you know, I knew a lot of AI and machine learning, but everything I knew was what's called frequentist, which means you don't model the uncertainty. You know, if, if, if you flip a coin once and you get heads, you just say that coin can never be tails because I've never seen it. And so it's, it, this is the heads coin. Um, and you could get, you know, far with that. But I think, you know, whether you're doing machine learning or not, you know, every, all of us who write software have to deal with uncertainty. And uh, for that reason, I love this book because it caters for people with a CS degree and kind of walks you through how to deal with, with, you know, these kind of circumstances. And if you ever played, you know, Civilization or any of these games um, and you think like, how does the AI do this? I mean, there's all this chance, like, like how does the AI how can it plan for that? Um, this book is is for you. It's it's a really good read. It's not hard, uh, not too heavy. And uh, check it out. I read, which is not my book of the show, but I I will mention it. Maybe I'll make it a future one. Is the signal and the noise or the sig- yeah, oh, signal? Yes, signal by Nate Silver. Well, it's a what would you call that? A popular book? No, yeah, it is popular, but it's a like written for a general audience. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he does in there discuss exactly what you were talking about, the difference between Bayesian and frequentist views of the world and has some kind of cogent examples and talks about how predictions, which is kind of like the the main subject of the book, uh, is about like Bayesian thinking, is about making predictions and evaluating if you got your prediction right or wrong. Yeah. Um, and so how that in general, we should be moving to that because it kind of better fits the world. Uh, yep. I mean, it's very hard 
Uh, just to like let people know why everything is in Bayesian, the problem is um, instead of thinking about things in terms of numbers, you think about things in terms of distributions, kind of like the Schrodinger's cat. It's like this coin, you know, it isn't heads, it isn't tails, it's, you know, 50-50. And the problem is the world is more entangled than we can understand. Um, and And not we as in human beings, but it's very hard to make a machine understand the entangled nature of the world. Like, for example, uh, you, if, if you have a feature in your model called day of week, it can't be Monday and Tuesday at the same time, right? Like, if it's Monday, you know it's not Tuesday. Um, but, you know, for the model to learn that, it has to see all the pairs of features. I mean, if you if you tell it explicitly, then sure, right? But but in general, the model has to look at all the interactions of all the variables to figure out which ones are sort of entangled. And that is super, super hard, and it requires an unbelievable amount of data. Um, so for these reasons, you know, it's very hard to get Bayesian stuff to work um, when it gets, you know, really complicated. And that's why when everything was complicated, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, people couldn't, couldn't you know, get there, right? But now it's starting to become more popular. So, I, yeah, that maybe I'll talk about in the future. But he has a lot of case studies about kind of failures of prediction. Um, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, we should definitely uh, do that. Because I've heard good things. I haven't read it yet. I'll read it. There you go. have already read we it. Can, and we'll it could talk be our book it. club. Our <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my actual book of the show, which seems anticlimactic at this point, is <laughs> a Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And I hope I'm saying that last name correct. Yeah, uh, that's and, right. Okay, good. And this is his view on startups, on a broad-ranging set of topics, I guess. And it, it is mostly about the difficulty, exactly what the book describes, of going from nothing to something, which is as opposed to what most companies do, which is once you already have something, trying to improve that something, which is like from one to two, for instance, Right. Um, and so going one to two is a very, very different problem than going zero to one and how that confusing the two is never going to really work for you. You're going to have problems. That makes sense. Um, it sounds really obvious when you say it that way. It's also him just kind of talking through some of the stuff behind what he's done, a little bit of a biography, I guess, um, with his work in PayPal. And then some notes about how when he runs a venture capital firm, how interestingly, if you try to go for the companies you think have the highest probability of success and you build a portfolio out of them, your portfolio will probably not do very well. You, what you actually want to do to some extent is increase the variance, looking for companies that have a great idea but a very low chance of success. But what you need is for them to go zero to one and return you know, 100,000 times your investment. And then it'll more than make up for all the other money you invested in the other companies. And, oh, I see. Or and this is probably my opinion on kind of his his thinking there. But the way I kind of take that away is when you hear people saying, "Why in the world did, would people invest in this company that seems silly?" Um, if it's silly because it's a radical idea, then it's probably very much merited, even if it's almost guaranteed to fail. But if you hear about a venture capital firm investing in something that 
has a very low chance of returning 100,000x on, even if it's successful, it's not going to move the market, <clears throat> then that actually might be a venture capital firm that isn't of the same caliber of what Peter Thiel is advocating is kind of the right way to do that investment. Oh, that makes sense. This sounds like uh, there's something called novelty search, and it works like this. Um, you, um, So the idea is you have kind of some function. You can give it inputs, you can get an output. And the way novelty search works is novelty search, if you give it a certain set of inputs, you win, but you don't really know what those are. So with a regular type of search, you know, you would start with something random and then you'd start with something a little different and you'd see kind of did it get better or worse. This is called hill climbing. And as you just keep tweaking things, tweaking things, you get better, 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 better. And at some point you get to the point where no matter what you change, it gets worse. That's called a local optimum. And you just say, okay, I'm done. Um, novelty search is kind of interesting. You feed in a set of inputs and then you feed in, you know, a different set of inputs. And if you get the same answer, that's bad. So, so if I feed in, you know, the second thing and I got the same answer, like, you know, I want to stay away from that part of the input space. So if I feed in, you know, if I change you know, the second variable just a little bit and I get a totally different answer, then I know, aha, the second variable, that's where all the interesting, you know, that's where all the variance is. And so it's kind of like you don't even care about the answer you get. You just care that it's different from the other answers you've seen before. Um, and so that's, it's interesting, like Peter Thiel is basically advocating novelty search when you're investing, <laughs> which sounds super dangerous. But I mean, it, it makes sense, I guess. I mean, if they find that, if that one thing they find is that valuable, then it makes sense. He also has thoughts about monopolies, which is interesting, and how monopolies can be good and you really want to invest in them. Uh, but, you know, kind of like what are the downfalls of it? But, you know, he talks about a lot of people kind of think they have a monopoly, but they don't. And then you just end up in a market that's a race to the bottom. Um, oh, I see. And then how, like, he has some thoughts about is Google a monopoly? And like, why or why not? Or like a de facto monopoly? You know, anyways, it's interesting. I don't want to, you know, spoil it all or give my interpretation, which is probably not right. So go listen to him <laughs> tell it. And uh, I will totally, totally check that out. Although I'll I guess totally now he's gotten into like some political stuff. So people might not like this suggestion of mine. Oh, but yeah. This is well, and not the, in regards to that. This is just in regards to the book and him talking about startups. That's why yeah, I listened we, to it. We were like racing each other to give that disclaimer. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get involved. This is uh this has nothing to do with politics at all. This is Peter Thiel talking about his companies. Uh, he has a lot of interesting political views as well. And that some of those are in this book, but not his really recent ones cuz this book's a little bit old. I don't remember gotcha. when it was released. <clears throat> and uh so, you know, we this is a portion of the show where we get to plug some stuff and I actually did listen to this book and all the books I listened to cuz I have a long commute on Audible. And we do have a affiliate link with Audible. And if you go to that link, you can get a free credit, which is good for basically any book that they have in their library, of which they have many, many, many books. Uh, and if you go through our link, then we get a little bit, you can help the show and uh, get a free book. And then you can cancel after you get the book. Or if you don't, then you'll just get a monthly subscription and get a book every month, which is what I have. And actually, my wife started listening. I don't know if we can say that on air. Oh, well, my wife shares my account. And so uh, it lets us <laughs> do that. Fine. And people uh, judge. 
I hear everybody talk about HBO all the time. Apparently, there's like only one HBO login in the whole world. Uh, <laughs> with Hulu, I think it's Hulu. No, sorry, not Hulu. With uh, Spotify, they crack down. Uh, I know, yeah, like Hulu and Netflix, like there's a limit to how many streams. Anyways, this is off topic. So, you know, now my wife's actually gotten some books. And so she's been, she's like, wow, this really actually is good. I enjoy listening to these books while I'm in the car where I would otherwise just listen to the same songs again or whatever. Yeah, I need to do this. You know, I've been I've been reading books on the bus and uh, lately I've been like, lately I've had to work a lot of overtime and I've been reading reading books. I feel like, um, you know, doing slow but permanent damage to my eyes. <laughs> like, like maybe, you know, listening to books, even though I'm on a bus, you know, just closing my eyes or looking out the window and listening to books would probably be much healthier. I knew someone who listened to books while they were working. I can't do that. Like it's oh, too no. distracting. Yeah. But while yeah, I'm in the car or you know, whatever, like, yeah, I do it. Uh, I mean, you can also listen to podcasts like this fine podcast. <laughs> That's right. Don't get an Audible subscription if you have to choose between Audible and our podcast. But if you have the luxury of doing both, which you should because we're only on once a month, then uh, check out Audible. You go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown, all one word. Um, we also have Patreon. So Patreon is a is a pretty cool service. Um, you can actually download the episodes from Patreon. I know some of our Russian friends can't uh, um, uh, can't get the episodes from their source. I'm still looking into like a better way to to handle that. Um, but at the moment, you can download the MP3s from our website or from Patreon, which has a really high uh, high speed connection. Um, if you're a Patreon subscriber. Um, you go to patreon.com slash programming throwdown. Um, it's as little as, I think a dollar is the minimum, a dollar a month. I don't know if you can donate. Oh, it's an episode, right? It's per episode. uh, Yeah. I mean, we, we keep the episodes once a month. We're not going to like accidentally, we're not going to purposely shill you and put 10 episodes a month or something. I don't think we can even do that. Episode part one, episode part two. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, anything you give helps out the show. It goes to things like, uh, you know, designing this T-shirt. So um, uh, so we appreciate, uh, you know, all of your donations. So being the last episode before the election, I have to make one joke based on what you said about, which you are right. Several people have written in that they can't download from Russia, but they can read all of our politicians' emails. <laughs> they can't, they can't, you can't listen to this podcast. That, that's our problem. We didn't have our RSS feed on WikiLeaks. So we That's just need problem. Julian Assange to decide that this is controversial and then yes. everyone can get a chance to listen to it. Yes, Julian, if you're hearing this. Uh, I'm sure hack- he listens. Yes, I'm sure he listens. Hack my computer and take all my programming throwdown episodes, but please leave my credit cards intact. <laughs> please no one do that to any of my stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, joking aside, don't ruin my life, please. I know some people out there are, are good enough to do that. Um, uber hackers and uh that would make my life hard Um, tool of the show tool of the show my tool of the show is how do you say that termeter why is every oh sorry i won't interrupt (laughs) you oh that's termeter which is supposed to be like thermometer or something i don't know but the idea so i uh um the way i work is i write a lot of kind of scripty tool kind of things prototypes, things like that. And I want to work very quickly. And usually the code I write has to be rewritten. Like once, you know, the the target keeps moving, 
we're learning a lot, and then we say, okay, this model works now, rewrite it. Um, so for this reason, like I need to work fast. And usually, you know, I'm writing all this code, I have a bunch of prints, it's in Python, I'm like printing a bunch of things. And then I kind of have to look through and I see, okay, here's a print saying, you know, iteration two, and then some data, and then iteration three, and then some data. And I have to like, in my head, kind of get the average of all these iterations. And it's just kind of a mess. And it's, and sometimes I'm just wrong. Like I just misread it, or I think the average is this just from eyeballing it. And when I go further down, it's really something else. And basically what I need is a way to go from prints in Python to a graph. But I need it to be just very, very easy. Um, if it takes more than 10 minutes, then it's not worth it. I could just eyeball it. And Termiter does this. It's amazing. Basically, it uses, you know, Unix pipes to, you know, it can stream in data. Uh, if you don't know what this is, check out our Unix commands episode. But you could uh, stream in numbers to this Termiter and it will turn it into a plot right there in your terminal. Um, so, so you could say like print and then do like ASDF, 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 and then some data. Um, then, you know, you're going to get all this prints with all these different things. You could do a grep for that ASDF, so on. So now you only have those lines that have those numbers that you want. And you can, you know, cut out those numbers, pipe them to Terminator, and you have a graph. So, um... It's, it's super, super powerful. I've been using it a lot. It's a lot of fun. I actually wrote my own before someone told me about this. Um, uh, the one I wrote actually does PNGs, so I think I'll keep mine. But uh, uh, but this is this is totally awesome, and it's uh, um, it's right there on GitHub. Now I'm distracted because the movie of the example is this website ASCII Cinema, and so they have a whole bunch of ASCII oh, art I saw movies. That. No, I'm yeah, distracted awesome. by clicking on random ASCII art movies. <laughs> so you have nothing else. Go to this GitHub page. I really encourage you to get it. But if you don't, check out the ASCII art movie. <laughs> and then, yeah, follow all of the other ones on that website. Nice. So my tool is, unfortunately, this is only, as far as I know, uh, on the iPhone. But they have an equivalent on Android as well. And that is Motion Stills. And so this is a product that was released by Google. And then I don't think it got a lot of traction, but they did integrate the technology that was a part of it into Google Photos. So I think this is how you can get to it in Google Photos. But I will say, if you have an iPhone, it's worth checking out, even though it's if you also already have Google Photos, which is awesome. And you should get Google Photos. I do recommend Google Photos. Um, Yeah, me too. And so what this will do is on your iPhone, if you take a live photo or you take a movie, it will do, uh, I guess, essentially image stabilization on the kind of movie that you have so that the things that are actually moving in the scene kind of pop out to a greater extent. And Oh, is that what it's doing? I was wondering what it was doing. Right. And so the reason you think, oh, that's not that big of a deal, except that when you have the looping happen and you manage to... before I had kind of live photos turned off and I thought it was just a waste of space. Uh, but now I've turned it on almost exclusively because of this. Most of the time, it kind of is just like, oh, that's silly or it doesn't work. But occasionally you just manage to capture something where if you're hand holding the phone, it moves just enough that you've ruined the effect. But if you run it through the motion stills, 
and you get the live photo where it's just like a person moving or turning to face the camera as you tell them, you know, smile, and then you take the picture, that you get this really cool, you know, much more artistic effect. Yeah, it's like the whole world is frozen except for your friend. Well, it looks, yeah, more like a cinema or a movie where you have a stabilized camera. Uh, but when yeah, you're hand-holding, like, you almost always get some vibration in the movie. Yeah, this is so, so cool. Yeah, I uh, I didn't know. But so wait, so if you have Google Photos, you already have this. Is I, that right? I believe that for movies, I don't know. I assume for live photos isn't a thing in Android. But if you have a movie, I would right. assume that Google Photos either at least has an op is what I read, has an option to do this or will do it automatically for your movies. Cool. Where it'll try YouTube has that as well, where it'll try to motion stabilize the movies. Very cool. I'll try this out. That was you should just go watch the videos on search motion stills and watch the videos because I'm sure my description of it was butchering it. No, no, it just, I, well, I thought it was solid. It makes sense. Cool. Um, okay, so it's now time we're for going the to topic of the show. The topic, which is distribution, you deploying De- software. You wouldn't think that. This would be hard. It is. <laughs> it's one of these things that kind of creeps up on you um, as a developer. You don't really expect this to be a problem. Um, like, where do we start? I guess we start with applications. That's kind of the most straightforward. Um, the most obvious question is, you know, I built this thing. It works on my computer. Why don't I just zip it up and email it to someone? I mean, that seems very logical. Um, if you try this, here's what will happen. You and possibly your friends will, it will run no problem. But uh, for most people, it won't work. And the reason why is, um, you know, everyone's operating system is in a different state. You know, I mean, you might have developer tools that most people don't have installed. You might even have just, you know, a slightly different version of Windows. Like it's still Windows 10 or XP or whatever you're running, um, but it's just you have a couple of security patches or a couple of updates that other people don't have, and uh, uh, and when it goes to their computer, it just blows up. It ends badly. Um, so basically, uh, don't zip up your program and send it to someone. I mean, you can do that if it's your friend and it, if it doesn't work, it's okay. But don't zip your program up and email it to your whole school or something. It's just not going to work. Um, well, and so, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I guess surprisingly, it actually is shocking that it does work sometimes. Like if you think about all yeah. the chances for it to go wrong, different processors, different whatever, but it actually has a non-zero chance of working, and that actually is kind of amazing in itself. Is that yeah, you, that's true. You can't email. You know, you can't email random like stuff from Windows to Linux, like that won't ever work because of kind of how the syscalls work uh, between the different operating systems. But if you email it to, you know, your friends and family, there is actually a chance of working. That's actually kind of cool because of how, and that's one of the purposes of the operating system itself is to make it so that you don't have to be specific to the exact processor you're on or to the exact configuration of everything. But then like Jason said, there's also a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, and so, so one of those things that can go wrong are your dependencies, which is the stuff that your program relies on that you may not realize at first, which is, uh, you know, if I install, and it depends on what language you're in, how obvious your dependencies are. But in Python, for instance, if you've just, 
you know, pip installed something on your computer and you send your Python script to someone else and they try to run it and they're like, it won't work, right? That's not sending a, a binary, I guess, but sending that script and it doesn't work is because you installed something and they didn't. Yep, that's right. But even for something like C++, if I use, uh, for instance, DirectX and I, well, I guess this isn't true. It is included now, I think. But if I sent it to Jason and Jason didn't have the same version of DirectX yeah, installed as open me. Open AL or something. Right, then I'm depending on some code that isn't shipped with the source code that I compiled. And that would happen if I'm using specifically a shared library, which is some binary that's compiled that isn't an executable, but is on my computer. And on Windows, those would be DLLs um, or SOs on Linux. And And even like, you know, no matter how, even the most professional software development studios still have this issue to deal with. Like that's why when you install a game on Steam, um, you get that little box saying, you know, checking for DirectX, installing DirectX. It's because nobody can guarantee that you have it. So everyone just makes you at least check for it. Right. And so t- part of distribution is making sure that the shared libraries that are expected on your system are there and that they have a compatible version because That's maybe right. the person has an older one or a newer one that is incompatible with your version. Uh, and so sometimes you end up with it must be greater than and sometimes must be between and sometimes must be equal to uh, the version of that library. That's uh, right. And even if sometimes you don't have shared dependencies, but sometimes there are shared libraries, but sometimes there are static libraries where the library is compiled into your binary itself. And that's one way to avoid having to check for it on someone's system is to just include it in yours when you send it. The problem there is that that's duplicate code. So it makes your binary bigger um, because you have to ship with all of the code you use instead of everyone being able to share the same code that is the same. That's right. And like also some people uh, won't give you a static library like DirectX. I don't believe they have static libraries. That's a good point. um, Also, it's a little bit of a trap. Sometimes a static library will refer to a shared library. And, and you won't even know that now you're depending on some shared library that you didn't know about. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of gotchas. Um, there's, there's certain like low level tricks you can do. Like there's this thing called dependency walker, but you don't want to do any of this. You want an installer that will do this for you. This is kind of like writing your own compiler. You don't want to do this. <laughs> I mean, unless that's your expertise. Um, so there's a bunch of installers. Um, for Windows, there's something called NSYS which is a Nullsoft scriptable install system. Um, on OS X, there's Sparkle, which is very popular. And on Linux, there's PPA, Personal Package Archives. Um, they all sort of have kind of different procedures for, for building your package and deploying it and things like that. Um, one thing I strongly recommend, if you're planning on deploying software to um, customers or to strangers um, or to any large group of people, um, get VirtualBox and, you know, get a version of Windows, a vanilla version of Windows, maybe even two different versions of Windows and a version of Linux or what have you, and make sure that you can install your program on that machine, that virtual machine that doesn't have anything else installed. Um, chances are the first time you try nine times out of 10, you know, you'll run your program and it'll pop up an error saying, oops, you know, you don't have 
you know, Visual Studio developer files or something like that, then you'll have to add that to your installer. So it's also worth pointing out for large projects and large programs that doing the installer and distribution and checking compatibility on the platforms is a job for people or peoples unto itself. Uh, yep. But for a small team or, or program, you know, a person is probably doing this along with doing other stuff. Yeah, and it's very time consuming. Um, you know, when I release MameHub, um, I mean, especially now that MameHub's been around for so many years, uh, I mean, I spend more time on the installer than anything else to this day. I mean, the past maybe three years, every year I've spent more time having maintenance issues on the installer than anything else. Uh-huh. Um, another way, I mean, people have obviously gotten sick of <laughs> building installers and, and definitely zipping their, their binary. So they have app stores. Uh, you know, you could consider Steam as, as an app store, right? Uh, Windows has an app store. Uh, Apple, obviously, you know, with iOS and OS X, they have the app stores. They're called App Store. Um, Android has the, the Play Store. Um, and basically, along with the store... There's also like developer support. So if you want to make a Windows app for the Windows app store, they've made it as simple as possible where you hit some button and it you know does everything it needs to do so that um, when someone gets that app from the store that that it will work on their computer. Um, they provide pretty good guarantees for that. Yeah, so there's a way to package and describe the needs of your app in a consistent way so that it works for everyone. Exactly. I guess Steam's a little bit different there because I don't think Steam has the same level of integration with that. Um, Does it? I actually have no idea how Steam works. I mean, (laughs) I'm assuming that there is Steam. I'm assuming that Steam integrates with Visual Studio somehow. Uh, But uh, but I don't know. It's a good question. Um, But the the continuous... um, Sorry, the... uh, the Steam, the Steam way that Steam is kind of different is that it there's like Steam has a wide variety. It has you know DOS programs. It really has to support a much broader base than something like uh, iOS, where you know everyone's running Xcode, um, or not everyone, but most people are using some variant of Xcode or Xcode build. Um, so yeah, Steam actually it's really interesting. Um, if you work for Valve. Um, and you're listening right now, write in, and uh, we're super interested how Steam actually works um, from the developer side. So, so related to this topic, but not quite what we've been talking about, so change of topics lately, is continuous delivery, and we'll talk about continuous deployment. And this is talking about you write the source code as a developer, and then assume you have a system that produces the installer that describes the dependencies that packages it up and ships it how does the process of when that happens occur and i think this is a topic of interest to a lot of people um the traditional way that it used to be done i I guess almost everywhere was people would essentially write code or if you're a small team you, you know you will write code at some point people will begin to say oh this is we're ready to kind of build this and ship it. You'll kind of compile it all, uh, package it up, install it on a few computers, virtual box, make sure it works. And then when it does, you'll kind of ship it to someone. And then you'll probably freeze that code. And then 
you know, start kind of making changes against it. And if there's a problem that your customer has or your friends have, you would edit that frozen version and try to like apply bug fixes. Um, and that, that that's kind of a very traditional way of deploying software and the software process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays you start to hear a lot of talk about continuous delivery or continuous deployment. And we'll talk about the difference in a second. And this is more once I integrate code into the repository, a series of automated steps begins to occur where it builds my code, it runs my unit tests, it builds the installer, it you know maybe runs some integration level tests, checks for problems, uh, and, and that happens in a system. And you'll hear stuff like Jenkins, uh, which yeah. is what will kind of monitor for those events and perform some scripted set of actions. And continuous delivery is about doing that on a very regular basis, like you every night or day, or even with every change doing some set of those tests and integration and making sure that the code is ready to be deployed at any point. Any code you have, the system, it always builds, it always is ready, it passes all the tests, but then it might go through a step of like human QA or evaluation, quality assurance or evaluation or testing before it's kind of promoted to this is a good release or a release candidate. But you still have kind of, you might hear like nightly or different people have different words for it, but you'll have still installers or versions of the executable for a much more granular, fine grain uh, thing. Yeah, it, and that that this is uh this is one of the things that makes this possible is um, you know thrift and protocol buffers and these kind of like very backwards compatible information kind of representation like like uh, if you have so many different versions if you're literally putting out a new version every night and you're sort of tweaking the way that data is saved. Um, you need something like thrift or protocol buffer. So someone on version 800 can, you know, migrate to version 802 without having to start from scratch. That's right. Um, And you begin to see there might be some problems, which is how do you check code into the code base for people to be able to review, but you don't want it kind of running yet, or it's incompatible with some other version. And this is where you start having feature flags come in. So portions of your code are active or not active. And then, for continuous deployment is like another step above continuous delivery, where in continuous deployment, you really are, after all of the automated steps complete, you're kind of saying to other people who would use your code, you can now use this. Uh, You wouldn't really, I guess, see that in something shipping to consumers. I I would think that would be really weird. But uh, for teams where you're producing a library that another team in your company consumes, they may have this where you know, every night there's a new version of your library produced and their build system just picks that up into theirs. And so you better make sure that your code and you have the tests and the automation to check that every single one of your changes could have that happen to it because you don't know when it's going to be created at any time. Yeah, actually, it made me think of something kind of interesting. Like, I wonder how many, I wonder what, for an average software uh, for average company that develops software, how much of the software do you think is used internally? My guess is a lot. <laughs> I mean, my guess is probably 50% um, when you include IT and, and, and everything. So so more than half of the software you write or your company writes will be consumed 
only by your company. Well, I, so, I guess it's hard. Yeah. So if you talk about like a microservices architecture, or even just a regular distributed system, you know, you might have the Amazon front page or home or search page or whatever. There's a whole bunch of services that are behind the application that is really kind of driving most of that. Are those things internal or not? Like, I, it's hard to say. Oh, good point. Yeah, um, I guess internal is a little fuzzy. I guess internal means the binary doesn't leave your servers. Oh, okay. That's but then the like every defined. website is internal only. That's right. That's true. <laughs> well, we're talking about a second, but I do want to say that, uh, you know, for like microservice, I said library, but also if you're running a service, you could redeploy that service with every code change or every night um, and make sure that you're always on the freshest release. That's right. Yeah. I mean, one thing maybe people don't know unless they do web development or just this kind of like service-based architecture is it's very, it's designed to be very, very modular. Um, and so for example, if you're making like a funny meme site that has like the funniest uh, 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 memes and, and people can comment about memes, things like that, you might have a, a service that all it does is write the meme text onto the image and it's just standalone. It's maybe in a Docker container or something. And so, you know, that team, you, you don't want to have this monolithic binary where if anything is wrong with any part of it, nobody can ship their updates. So you have the team that's doing the write the text onto the image. They're doing continuous deployment and they are, you know, with some degree of, of certainty, like, like failing, you know, maybe once a year they blow up the, the build or something, but it's okay um, because there's redundancy and we'll talk about that more later. But yeah, I mean, imagine you know, when you build something for school, you usually build this one huge binary. Um, it's got like your project and maybe you keep adding onto it throughout the year. But, uh, but in industry, there's, there's just thousands and thousands of services. Well, depending on the size of your company, but there's many, many services and they're all kind of communicating to each other and all updating, um, you know, almost at least nightly, if not more often. Well, or at least not in a amazing. coordinated way. Uh, what's that? There oh, isn't, yeah, not a, yeah. Yeah. There isn't a coordinated, okay, everybody roll out now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we could jump into web development. So um, maybe the first thing I'll talk about is sort of how do you update the website? And then I'll go into you know, the database. So, you know, the database is just to recap database. So it holds all of your information. You know, if you're doing this meme website, the database is holding all of those images and your user accounts and all of that stuff. Right. Um, and then the website is where all of your logic is, which says, uh, you know, it, it, it'll hold some data, but it's meant to be very transient. You know, someone uploads a new meme, you know, it has to go somewhere. It doesn't go straight to the database. So uh, actually, it does if you listen to last month's talk with HyperDev. But uh, generally, you know, it goes to some web server. Um, uh, we're not that cool yet. It goes to some web server. That web server kind of accepts it, you know, and says, okay, this user made this meme and then puts that information in the database. So, um, uh, so, so you can hot swap this. So what that means is if you have a new version Maybe that version is faster. You know, maybe when you upload the meme, maybe when you upload the meme, it like turns it into a JPEG or something. No matter what, how you uploaded it, you could upload a PNG, it turns into a JPEG. So you want to make this change. Well, the database doesn't have to change. 
It's just storing these images. So what you can do is you might have you might have the most popular meme site ever. So you have thousands and thousands of machines and they're all just super busy making your website work. So you can say, I'm gonna change one of these machines to do this JPEG conversion thing. And then you can actually see, you know, if you have the right logging infrastructure, you can see like, okay, I have more JPEGs now than I did yesterday. And this machine is producing a bunch of JPEGs and it's sane and everything. And then you say, okay, I've done one machine and it looks good. Let's do 10 machines next day. Next day, let's do 100 machines. Okay, let's do all 1,000 machines. And so in this way, you're kind of transitioning people from one version of your site to the other. <clears throat> um, another thing you can do, which is what Patrick mentioned, is if, if uh, you might have a flag um, which will change uh, all the machines at once or maybe some of the machines, but it's controlled at runtime. So instead of you saying, I'm gonna replace the code in this machine and not the other ones, you say, I'm gonna replace the code in all the machines, but only the ones that have this flag set will do something different. The rest of the machines will all continue doing the same thing they were doing before. Um, so you're kind of trusting yourself to use those flags you know, appropriately and not actually change something on all the machines. And that's that flag approach is what you have to do if you need to change the database, right? So let's say, um, you know, I'm storing these memes and my site's getting so popular that I actually have to use a new database that can only hold JPEGs, but it can do an amazing job and it will save my company a whole bunch of money because of the way it handles the JPEG. So... You keep the old database around and you start bringing up the new database and you actually do duplicate writes. So in other words, you say, I'm going to write, you know, the PNG file to the old database and I'm going to write the JPEG file to the new database. But when I read, I'm going to read from the old database. And then you start monitoring and what you should hope is that these databases start to look the same over time that you know, eventually they should have the same data in them. Um, and when that happens, then you start having machines start reading from the new database. You're like, okay, I'm writing everything twice and I'm verifying that when, when I write twice, they're in both databases and it looks solid. Let's have a few machines start reading from the new one and then you keep monitoring. And then when that looks good, then you kind of switch everyone over. So it's this, it's this very gradual process, but you know, as a person who's using the website, it's completely opaque to you. I mean, it's kind of remarkable that, you know, you could have an Amazon page and then leave it on your browser, refresh three days later, and you're probably looking at, like, the code that's servicing your page is completely different, but they make it look exactly the same, which is pretty awesome. Well, I think that's all we got for deploying software. That was kind of three vaguely related discussions. Yeah, I mean, and this should kind of tell people, uh, you know, it's hard. It's domain specific. It's not a science. Um, um, there's there's a lot of nuance, a lot of cruft that's developed over the years. And it's become this sort of craft. There are some people who are like, you know, deployment craftsmen. <laughs> what what did we call them? In oh, the I don't past? like when people say it's an art, but I think that's good. I'm going to use that. It's a craft. Yeah. Like we have uh, production engineers. Um where I work and, and uh, um, they do more than this, but this is one of their expertise. Yeah, um, craft, I'm gonna use that. Yeah, 
they, they craft an installer that actually installs correctly. <laughs> so, um, so just to repeat, to sort of recap, um, the tools of the show were Termiter and Motion Stills. The books of the show were Bayesian Methods for Hackers and uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, you can check it out on our show notes, get links to all of that. Which are on Facebook, apparently, and on ProgrammingThrowdown.com. That's right. We're on Facebook. Uh, someone asked me to start you, you posting on them Facebook. on. <laughs> That's right. Patrick is. Are you boycotting actively or are you just. No, I think passively? I do have an account. I just, I don't know. I'm not a social person. I'm a terrible human being. So I'm not <laughs> okay. a social person. So I don't find interest. I, I think, did I talk about this last episode? I checked out Instagram and it was like, no, I don't read the comments. I just look at the pictures and I'm like, oh, I can get behind this. It's like pictures from people, <laughs> I think, but like no words. Right. I don't like to, like people say things and I'm just, it makes me mad or frustrated or, you know, whatever. anyways. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't do sense. Facebook. Patrick isn't Facebook, but, uh, you know, if we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on G plus, um, and we're on LinkedIn. Someone asked me to start posting them on LinkedIn. So I said, sure. Um, and some people actually respond on LinkedIn, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, it's a little sad that there isn't one continuous thread of comments that go across all of these networks. Uh, it's almost like, like every time I add a network, it kind of fragments. But uh, I think it actually doesn't fragment. It just grows the amount of communication. But I just wish that someone... There's a startup to take that from zero to one. <laughs> That's right. Let's get Peter Thiel on this. Um, so, you know, hey, check follow us on all of them. Then you can see all the discussions going on in parallel. Maybe a human can, like, copy all of the comments across and keep them all in sync. Yeah, exactly. No, don't, don't. That just sounds miserable. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, definitely don't. Uh, don't volunteer yourself for that. That sounds terrible. Well, thank you all for enduring another episode. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, uh, I, let me know about the T-shirts. Um, we have a straw poll. Vote. And uh, send us an email with uh, your name and uh, what T-shirt you want. And uh, if we get enough orders, we will we will put in the bulk order. I think we need 25. Uh, we'll put in the bulk order. And uh, I'm sure we're going to get 25. Uh, but uh, but uh, definitely, you know, let us know so that we can get you a shirt. Well, there's you and me and our moms. So we've got four. That's right. we got four. <laughs> 21 <laughs> slots left. <laughs> That's right. Till next time. See you later. Intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.